This is episode 40 of the Baggage Reclaim Sessions. I'm your host, Natalie Liu, author of baggagereclaim.com, where I help people to offload the shady relationships and emotional baggage that block healthy self-esteem and loving relationships. This week, I talk about what to do when you really dislike your friend's choice in partner and how to deal with narcissistically inclined folk in your life. I was talking with a friend recently who had started dating somebody and they've been together for about six weeks or so. And it started out with very, very high hopes. But then the crunch conversation came and he's basically said that, you know, he's not really sure what he wants right now and that he would just kind of like to see where things go, that he's not long out of a relationship and, you know, he just wants to basically go with the flow. And she, understandably, was frustrated with this, but also at the same time relieved because it's six weeks in and it's not like they're having a conversation several months down the line. And it's like now she knows where she stands. And we were talking and, you know, we kind of had a bit of a giggle about the whole situation. And I said to her, well, he's basically saying, I don't want a relationship that has a purpose or a direction. Now, you might think I'm being hard here, But here's the thing. It is 100% okay for somebody to not want to be in a relationship, to not want to sort of commit themselves to looking at the possibilities. They're entitled to do that. But what they're not entitled to do is to make you feel that you should go along with it. They're not entitled to basically draw every person that they decide that they feel attracted to into that arrangement. You know, if... If you like them, but you actually have in your mind that you want to be in something that is more committed in the long run, then it's okay to say at this point, actually, I don't want to participate in that much as I like you. When a relationship doesn't have a purpose and a direction, because obviously if the relationship has a purpose, then it's going to yield a level of direction, then the relationship has no aim. So why would we want to be in a relationship that doesn't have any aim if Our aim is to find ourselves in a relationship where we can enjoy mutual love, care, trust and respect, shared values and basically create a life with somebody. Why would we want to be in a relationship with no aim? Somebody expecting us to accept a relationship with no purpose, no direction isn't really fair. It's okay for them to not want to have a relationship with purpose and direction. It's just not okay for them to want that with us if that's not what we want. I think if we accept a relationship that doesn't have that purpose, that doesn't have that direction. And somebody turns around and they say, I don't want to put a label on things. I just want to go with the flow. I'm not sure what I want. Like, Why do we have to get so serious? Like, Can't we just like see how things go? Or I'm afraid that if I say that we're in a relationship, that it's going to ruin things. I'm afraid that if I say, yeah, okay, let's just see how things go. And let's see, yes, I do want to be in a relationship with you. And yes, I want to commit to exploring this, that I'm immediately going to ruin it. But here's the thing. When somebody turns around and says to us, I just want to go with the flow and all of this type of stuff. Realistically, what they're saying to us is, I don't want to give you the impression that this can go anywhere. And you know what? I don't think that we need to go into relationships uh, going sitting on there on the first day and be like, I want to get married. Because invariably, even though we do want to get married, the person who's sitting there, depending on what type of person they are, 
might be like, what, she wants to get married to me or he he wants to get married? Like, he's a bit fast. And actually, yeah, it's okay for us to recognize those things. But there is a, a process, obviously, of getting to know that person. But having in mind what it is that we actually ultimately want out of a relationship means that we can steer ourselves away from things that are going to take us in the opposite direction to that. So if we go into an involvement where it's not allowed to have a purpose and where it's not allowed to have a direction, that person is effectively turning around and saying, I don't want you to be open to the possibilities. I don't want to be open to the possibilities, but I also don't want you to think that there is a possibility because I don't want to be too committed. Generally speaking, when we do want to be in a relationship that has a level of purpose and direction, we want to know that we have the option of having a future. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And if somebody turns around and says, yeah, I just want to go with the flow and all this other stuff, they're basically saying, I don't want to uh, have that future or I want to block off that, you know, yeah, we can have a future where we can have fun, we can have sex, we can do this, we can do that. But please don't think about the future in in this particular types of terms. And it might not necessarily mean marriage. I hear from people who have been going out with somebody who it might be three, four years down the line and they have dates each week. So they're effectively still dating. It's never progressed really beyond that in something deeper. They don't meet the person's friends. They might not necessarily have met that person's family. It doesn't really feel as if their lives have become integrated. It doesn't really feel as if things have grown. We are allowed to actually want to have the possibility of a future. No, I don't think that we need to look to have the possibility of a future with everyone. But I think at the point where we are with somebody and we are talking about taking the next step which might just literally be going from we're dating to okay we're in a relationship together and we're not exploring our options with somebody else we need to know that that person's willing to close off their options to explore the possibilities whatever those possibilities might be when we are dealing with somebody who is at best narcissistically inclined and at worst an actual out and out narcissist with narcissistic personality disorder it can be incredibly painful, especially if we are the target of some of their shadier ways. And particularly if we look for attention, affection, love, approval or validation from this particular person. And so what I want to talk about today are some specific strategies and a sort of mindsets for dealing with narcissistically inclined folk or actual narcissists. This isn't an exhaustive session in the sense that we could talk about this subject for a long time. So really what I want to do is delve into some key points because last year I, in episode five, I talked about like why do we find tricky co-workers so stressful? And a particular recurring theme that I keep seeing in uh, emails to me about the show or, or to the blog or comments is about how awful it is to work for a bully, especially one that really does exhibit narcissistic tendencies. And also just to work with somebody who has those delusions of grandeur and he walks around thinking that they are the king or the queen or the boss of the world or the messiah themselves. It can really be incredibly damaging to your sense of self if that person manages to really get their claws into you as such. 
And so I think that in recognizing a few key things and sticking to certain, I don't want to say uh, rules, but I think more of a mode of living around these types of people, then you can really, for your own self-preservation, spare your sanity and you stop making sense out of nonsense and you stop trying to change somebody or, or trying to make somebody be empathetic when they really can't. Now, at the top of the list, I decided to go with narcissistic co-workers. Remember, we spend, well, at least, obviously, depending on whether it's a part-time job or a full-time job, but imagine that we might spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80 hours a week even at work. And imagine that we then have to work with somebody who is, as I said, at best narcissistically inclined, so might be exhibiting a couple of narcissistic traits or one in particular. So they might be, you know, very unempathetic or they might have delusions of grandeur. You know, it's that whole uh, sort of self-serving, using people as a means to an end, being very, very cutthroat, the superficiality. It's exhausting to be around this type of person. But strangely, and, you know, I've encountered it myself, you know, many years back, it can also, you can also feel very, very flattered to be around this kind of person. So on one hand, you might actually be like, oh my gosh, this person repulses me. And on the other hand, be like, oh, but when that person compliments me or basically turns their attentions on me in a positive way, it feels like the sun has come out for the first time in a hundred years. If you can keep these 10 particular tips in mind when you're working with somebody who is narcissistic or narcissistically inclined, you can keep yourself out of a lot of trouble. Now, something that I spoke about in that same episode, episode five, and you can get any podcast episode by putting in baggagereclaim.co.uk forward slash the episode number. Uh, One of the things I talked about is about facts. Facts are brilliant for dealing with not just narcissistic folk, but also passive aggressive people. Because when you stick to the facts, then you are dealing in reality and they are off in their own little la-la land, but you stop letting somebody hijack your own reality. So when you are working with somebody who is like this, you have to stick to the facts. If you start trying to get sucked into their world, or when I say too emotional, I mean that using things or talking about things in very, very emotional terms with that person and seeing them through a very, very emotional filter, you will get sucked into their la-la land and start getting very, very confused about who you are and who they are and who has power and all the rest. And you don't want to start trying to make sense out of nonsense. So stick to the facts because it is the thing that they don't deal in. If you stick to the facts, you are already streets ahead because they start to realize, oh, hold on a second. I can't mess with that person. That means document everything. That means get things on email. That means if a conversation has been had or something has been done, follow it up you know, with an email. And believe me, if you run into, you know, further problems with this person that's going to result in there being, you know, some sort of disciplinary, then having this type of stuff documented is incredibly useful as well. But it also means that if you stick to the facts and you keep sticking to the facts, it is very, very difficult for that person to run rings around you. I will say as well, though, that if you are working for somebody who is narcissistic, as in they are the owner of the company, uh, or certainly that they're high up enough that they seem to have the actual owner or boss of the company under their firm as such, I would really seriously consider whether you actually want to still continue working for that person. So obviously, I also crossed there into number two, which is to document everything. Then uh, number three is really 
keep your head down with a narcissist. I'm not saying keep your head down at work. I mean, don't try to be their buddy. Don't try to sort of attract negative attention to them because they're just going to turn on you in an unpleasant way. I always say play the long game with this type of thing. So that goes into number four, which is like don't slag them off because first of all, you don't know who you're dealing with and who that you've got who's in their flying monkeys entourage. So be very, very careful of slagging them off because they can really turn that around to their advantage and suddenly they can play the victim, which is one of their favorite things to do. So please don't go slagging them off. But number five, use the rules that they don't. You will sometimes find that somebody who is narcissistic will try to use the rules against you at work, but invariably, because of their delusions of grandeur, they always trip themselves up. So if you're sticking to the company guidelines and really holding them to the company guidelines, if things go too far, it makes it that much easier really to deal with this particular person. Don't try to make sense out of nonsense would be number six, because I think that if you let yourself be drawn into their nonsense world, you will suddenly wake up weeks or months down the line wondering who on earth you are. Now, what I mean by not making, uh, try not to make sense out of nonsense is you can go to a meeting with somebody who is, you know, an artist and they will turn around and say stuff. And sometimes it won't make sense. And sometimes it's just... Uh, exaggerations, uh, you know, not taking responsibility for certain things, drawing other people into certain things. If you then try to kind of stay on side by buying into all of this and, and sort of agreeing with it all and trying to make sense out of it and almost trying to turn into Inspector Clouseau or Jessica Fletcher or Grissom or whoever you want to call it or Columbo and you're trying to investigate their nonsense and trying to make sense out of it and trying to get them to make sense out of their own nonsense, you will drive you crazy before you will ever extract one little drop of empathy out of that person. So number seven is don't disclose personal matters to the narcissist at work. It will not make them empathize with you. I can't say this enough. Uh, it's either that they can't empathize or they don't want to empathize. It really depends on whether they actually have narcissistic personality disorder or whether they're just narcissistically inclined and very, very self-involved. Either way, if you keep trying to make them empathize by disclosing personal matters to them, you will only have them used against you. So keep your personal stuff to yourself and make sure that if you are disclosing anything personal to people at work, that they are incredibly trustworthy. Because here's an example of how they can use it against you. So you are working with somebody who is like this. And now they want to unseat you and they're being a bit of a bully with you. So they come over to you and uh, you raise something with them. And you say, oh, Amelia, I just want to go through these figures with you. It looks like something's a bit off here. So because they don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem with the figures, that they've, they've handed in a piece of work that's incorrect, it now becomes, oh, what's wrong? Got your period today? Got problems at home with the boyfriend or the girlfriend? Finding the, finding the job hard. And if you get sucked into that and all of a sudden start questioning yourself and get, you basically get sucked along in the gaga train with them, next thing you know, you've totally forgotten the validity of what you've basically raised with them. And that person has then sort of hijacked your reality, hijacked your emotions and basically belittled you. Also that they can avoid having to be accountable and responsible for the work that they've done. Also that they can avoid being real and they can act as if they're more superior. 
So that brings me really to number eight, which is don't get drawn into side issues. And this is something that I also spoke about in episode five. Narcissists love a side issue. You say you raise a problem with them and you say you did such and such and all of a sudden it becomes about, oh, now you've done something to them. So you, for instance, turn around and complain about their behavior or complain about the fact that they haven't done something. And now it becomes you're a bad person because you've made them feel bad because you turn around and pointed out that the fact that they had done something uh, incorrect at work or whatever it is. Uh, they will, as I said, you know, uh, bring up stuff that has absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with the situation at all. They're exhausting. So number nine, never respond from a child role. And this, I think, is the pivotal thing really in all situations with people like this. So part of the reason, aside from the fact, obviously, that their behavior is pretty deplorable at times, but aside from that reason, really the key reason why a narcissist could really get under your skin at work is because they remind you of somebody else in your life. From potentially from earlier on in life. So they're pushing that button and it's triggering. It might not be that the person earlier in life was necessarily an out-and-out narcissist, but some of those traits, those bullying ways, the critical ways, the, I don't know, building you up and then discarding you, you know, not knowing which way is up sometimes, but that person can be very, very familiar to you. And so next thing you know, they are now treated like an authority, somebody who's more superior to you, somebody who now holds the key to your value. You then start coming from a place of being in a child role. You're responding to them as if you're responding to that person from the past. And that is a major problem. The thing is, is that if you start doing that, for instance, and that person is your boss and the person who they're reminding you of is your mother, you're going to be engaging with that person as if they're your mother and you're their kid. So they will still be activating you in exactly the same way. So you'll be hungry for praise, hungry for validation, and at the same time feeling incredibly belittled, resentful, in pain, wounded, and all sorts of stuff. So you can't be in a child role at work. That's putting aside narcissistic folk. You just can't be in a child role at work. You've got to work at, you know, from an adult place. And that way you are then able to distinguish between you and others rather than seeing people as having power over you to kind of determine your entire life and, and you know, to know nurture and, and to raise you. Which brings me then to number 10, which is, and this really ties in neatly really across all the previous points, which is about using neutral, non-emotional uh, tones of them. You know, I have learned this from personal experience of dealing with narcissistically incli inclined folk and actual narcissists, is that if your tone seems to sort of infer that you're actually getting quite distressed, quite wound up, they will latch onto that and try to use that as a way to blow a hole in your very, very legitimate uh, concern or argument, whatever it is. And so when you use even neutral tones, you know, with this with this person, it's very, very difficult to find somewhere where they can basically wedge their claw in and basically use it against you. And all of the points here that I've mentioned about co-workers really can be used, again, with any other folk. But these are ones that I, I, I wanted to mention specifically about work. Now, let's go over to family members. Now, I have plenty of experience of this. And, and so I can tell you for, for sure that this stuff does work. Again, this is not necessarily an exhaustive list, but it is the key stuff. So the first one is, you know, I talked about this with the co-workers, but this is ever so important with family that behave this way. Number one, do not confide. 
if you confide your uh, very personal information, stuff that you are, I don't know, looking for maybe support on, empathy, that type of thing, it actually could be used against you if they are of that inclination or it will be seen as a slight against them. Now, you might be going, huh? Like, how could me confiding something personal in them be seen as a slight against them? So narcissists, you know, like to, you know, delude themselves into believing they are the best, they are superior, all this stuff, you know, there's delusions of grandeur. So when a family member, particularly if this is like a parent-child relationship, so if you go, for instance, to your mother and you go and confide something that basically infers that you are not perfect, you're basically, because they treat you like an extension of them, uh, they're going to feel very, very wounded, insulted, offended, you know, all sorts of stuff because it's like, oh my gosh, I am not perfect. And look at you, you are failing. And that means that I am failing. So yeah. Now I know that when uh, we are the kid and somebody is our parent, or actually we can, we can be like this with family members, we do like to say to ourselves, oh, but they're my mom or they're my dad or they're my sibling or whoever, I should be able to confide in them. One of the things I say to people in life is figure out what people are good at. And if somebody's strength is not being confided in, if somebody's strength is not being supportive, yes, I know it's annoying. Yes, I know it's frustrating. Yes, I know it's painful. But why would you keep setting you up for pain by confiding in a person that keeps using it against you? Don't do it. Yes, it would be nice if, for instance, you could have that supportive mother who you could go and confide all your problems in. But if you don't, Instead of trying to make them into somebody else, instead of blaming you for the fact that they're not that way, recognize them for who they are. Recognize the humanness in them, even if they don't recognize the humanness in them. Number two is to keep it real. And when I say keep it real, what I mean is get on with doing your thing. Be yourself because they're going to do whatever they're going to do anyway. Now, once you are keeping it real around somebody who is of that inclination, they are less inclined to uh, focus so much of their attention at you because they know it's not really going to get anywhere. Now, there might be a part of you that's like, oh, that feels like it's rejection of me because, you know, I'm trying to basically be my authentic self and now they don't want to be around me or it feels like they focus on somebody else who is more superficial but that's not about you. That's about their inclinations. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, do I want to be in pain or do I want to be free? Do I want to be battling with this person or do I actually want to get on with my own life and, you know, focus on opportunities to open myself up to relationships that are much more substantial, but that much more authentic. Number three is find the sweet spot. So instead of, instead of trying to have everything on the menu of, for example, uh, a mother-daughter relationship or a, a sisterly relationship or a father-daughter relationship or whatever type of relationship that it is with this particular family member, find the find the sweet spot of where you get on without there being that antagonism. Find the sweet spot of where actually I can spend time around this person, I can have a laugh around them, I can feel relaxed and it doesn't cross into that territory of, oh my gosh, I'm under attack or, oh yeah, they want something out of me again. That might mean that, you know, at that intersection, your relationship might seem quite light. But to be honest with you, if that light relationship is actually quite fruitful, enjoy it for what it is, rather than trying to force it to be something that it isn't, and uh, sort of then finding that you're in pain. So again, that does go back to recognizing what they're good at. That, that, that might be very, very limited, but if you're going to have a level of relationship with them, accepting them for who they are and enjoying, I guess, almost the relationship at its, uh, I guess, in its at its 
at the at the most rewarding point of the relationship, which also might be the narrowest point of the relationship, because you know that you know somebody who might be quite superficial might mean that it's going to have shallow depths to that relationship. If you can enjoy that relationship at that sweet spot, that's the place to enjoy it, rather than trying to make that person into something that they're not. Again, if the person is not empathetic, if the person doesn't really do supportive, but they do do light humor, they might do I don't know more practical things. Enjoy that sweet spot of the relationship rather than trying to make them into somebody else. Number four, stop trying to be the favorite. Opt for respect. So if you decide to do number two, which was to keep it real, you will find that, yes, you might get on their damn nerves at times. Yes, they might sometimes very vocally object to your realness because obviously it's going to sometimes make them feel uncomfortable. But you know what? they'll also respect you. Now, if you keep trying to be the favorite with somebody who is narcissistically inclined, you can't be authentic, you can't be happy and also seek to be the favorite. You might think that your happiness very much relies on being the favorite, but when you start to examine why you're looking to be the favorite, then you actually have opportunities to support you in a more authentic way rather than setting you up for pain. Because the reality is that if you're trying to be the favorite with a narcissist, then you are also likely to replicate that into other types of relationships. It might be your uh, romantic relationships, it might be in your friendships, it might be at work trying to basically be the favorite. You might find that you compete with other family members and that's really going to be to the detriment of yourself. And then number five is don't look for sympathy. You are uh, a unique worthwhile and valuable individual all in your own right. You are a separate entity. And I specifically put don't look for sympathy in its own separate point because I think that we find ourselves behaving in ways that are reflective of a pattern that we have been in for quite a long time. And when we find that we are doing things to try to get noticed by a particular person, to try to get sympathy from that person, that um, we end up doing more and more things to compound the pain that we are already in. We keep trying to get the person who has let us down in various ways when we were younger to try to recognize that so that we feel that we can have that permission to move on. Stop looking for sympathy from that person. Empathize with you. Recognize where you were coming from in that place. Recognize where they were coming from. Recognize their deficiencies. We all have our flaws. We all have our faults. It's just their faults. You know, their flaws are around, you know, sort of narcissistic inclinations. But if you can recognize that and stop looking for that sympathy from them, then you will also, in a way, stop putting you in a position where you're doing things to make you feel sorry for yourself or to make others people, other people feel sorry for you. Now, last but certainly not least, I want to talk about narcissistic partners. And, you know, everything I've talked about so far, you can apply in some form to a narcissistic romantic partner. Now, realistically, I could devote an entire show, possibly even several shows, just to talking about narcissistic partners. But there are really three things, I think, that I want to focus on here, which is if you are with a... Um, narcissistic romantic partner, the relationship is unlikely to last. I mean, yeah, it could run and run. But I mean, if what you're looking for is something much more deeper, something that where you are partners on an equal level, mm, yeah, the relationship is unlikely to last. Uh, the reason why I say this is because 
you are likely to get into a relationship with a narcissistically inclined or actual narcissistic partner if you're coming from that place of being in a child role and you have typically been raised by somebody who is very, very critical or very exacting and basically exhibits quite narcissistic inclinations themselves. So you're highly likely to find yourself with that type of partner if that is your background. If there is this kind of big wound that's kind of left you in this in this place of like, I don't like myself, I am unworthy, I need to basically try and catch self-worth from somebody. But the thing is, is that a narcissistic romantic partner doesn't see themselves as being equal to you. So you cannot forge intimacy with them. And things will only really be of a superficial depth. And realistically, they have that zero-sum mentality. So where it's like, their gain is your loss. And if you gain, then they're losing. So they're always trying to basically up themselves. They see themselves as the best. And if you see yourself as being the best, and you see yourself in that superior fashion, then you can't be on the equal level that you need to be in a romantic relationship. So I would seriously question realistically, if you're still trying to forge a relationship with a narcissistically inclined or actual narcissistic partner, what's the baggage behind this? Why are you you trying to pursue this? Because when you can understand that and you can start to heal the wounds from the past, you will find that this relationship really isn't very attractive to you. And, you know, and I know I reference this episode a lot, but you can find uh, where I talk about what's the baggage behind it in episode two. And so point number two is, if the person is showing more inclinations rather than um, out-and-out narcissistic personality disorder. And I will include a link to where you can read up more about that in the show notes, you know, the actual criteria that they use to, you know, diagnose somebody as being uh, narcissistic or or having narcissistic personality disorder. It's very possible that therapy might help. That's with inclinations, not with having the full-on, you know, full-blown disorder. But bearing in mind that the more inclinations they have, the more problems that you have. Um, but, you know, yeah, sure, it's worth giving therapy a try. But typically, if somebody is actually narcissistic, therapy is the last place that they want to go. And they can also be very, very charming. And it can also be very convincing where they can go to that session and come out and go, they said there's nothing wrong with me. They tell me that it's it's my partner, that it's you. And of course, that's not true. That's not what they said. So that's the second point. And the third is that if you are still in a relationship and you see yourself being in it for for some time due to whatever circumstances, I think you do at some point have to make the consequences of not changing, of not adapting, or certainly uh, restricting their behavior clear and follow through. So what I mean by that is that uh, if you are not a person of your word and you don't set boundaries and instantly like narcissists and boundaries like don't really mix but obviously if you're quite a boundary person then there are going to be uh, consequences created and one of those consequences is that the relationship cannot continue it might be that if you have a family together it's like listen you know i'm not expecting you to revolutionize the wheel here but you're going to have to restrict that type of behavior if you actually want to keep your family around that said if somebody is at the mpd end of the scale of things then you may find find that having that type of conversation with that person is particularly futile. So again, I've included links to uh, uh, posts and uh, more resources that I think can be of help to you if you want uh, further help on this particular subject. But seriously, uh, don't try to make sense out of nonsense. You know, don't look for approval, attention, affection, validation, love from this person. You know, don't try to make them authority of you. And you will find that you keep yourself out of a lot of trouble with these type of people. I hear from a lot of people who are so convinced 
of their unworthiness. The problem when we feel that we are unworthy, you know, that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy, is that when it comes to our interpersonal relationships, particularly around our romantic relationships, but not just those, we are going to make choices that really reflect the fact that we don't believe that we deserve a loving relationship or that we don't feel that we are going to be able to get one from the other party, you know, because we feel so unworthy. But here's the thing. The same energy that is used to convince you of your unworthiness when you have this kind of mentality can be used to convince you that you are indeed worthy of a relationship, that you are indeed a worthwhile and valuable person. So that's the whole thing. It's just a misappropriation of your energy. The same energy that you use to convince you of your unworthiness can be turned into something so much more positive when you start actually trying to convince you of your worthiness. It's the same energy just used in a different way and yielding more positive results. And I remember reading years ago, and it just popped into my head now as I was saying this actually, you know, about uh, one of my favorite books, actually, You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. And it's about making that connection between uh, your emotional health and your physical health. I remember her saying something like, you can basically, when you have negative beliefs, you spend a lot of your time affirming negative things about you. And that when you now start to say positive things that sound reflective of you, so that are not said in some sort of, you know, saying things that you don't actually believe are true, but saying positive things about, you know, affirmations. So that when you put the same energy into saying positive things about you, into treating you well, you can yield fantastic results. The same energy that goes into convincing you of your unworthiness can be turned into something so much more positive and redirected to convincing you of your worthiness. It would be so much better, life will be so much better if you spend your life looking for evidence of your worthiness rather than looking for evidence of your unworthiness. It's really, again, that appropriation of your energy and choosing mindfully about what you want to look for and the type of energy, the type of emotion, the type of, you know, life you want to lead. It's that time in the show where I answer a listener question. Sarah wants to know whether she should say anything about her objections to her friend's wedding to a significantly older man. She says... I'm a female in my mid-30s and I'm stressed because one of my best friends, who is the same age as me, just got engaged to a man 20 years her senior after only knowing him for six months and dating him for three months. I am freaked out by their age difference. He even looks 10 years older than he is, but I know that it is partly just because it's triggering my own issues. I'm in an unhappy marriage with a man my own age and over the past couple of years, I have often wondered what life would be like if we broke up. Seeing my friend with this guy has made me wonder, are all men dating women half their ages? Is that all I can look forward to if I become single again? Some old perv who looks older than my father and can't handle being with women his own age? Also, I kind of see this guy as a stereotype who is having a midlife crisis. And I don't really think that he's thinking about what's in my friend's best interest. And that makes me dislike him. 
My main concern for her is the length of time she has known him. I just don't think she knows him well enough to be making this kind of leap. And he seems to be racing her to the altar because he wants to lock it down before she comes to her senses and runs. She is deeply religious and he seems to have convinced her that this is all part of some divine plan. The wedding day is set for this coming fall. And I feel like it would take everything I have to be supportive. I will also feel like a hypocrite if I don't say anything. Can you tell me what, if anything, you would say if this was your friend? Am I just projecting because this is triggering my own issues or should I voice my concern? As you can imagine in my line of work, I have friends who come to me sometimes for advice and sometimes I see my friends in situations that I can kind of get a sense of what's probably going to come next. But when they come to me and ask me for advice, because I don't offer up unsolicited advice, uh, if they ask me for advice, I always say, do you want me to put my friendship hat on or do you want me to put my baggage reclaim hat on? Or do you even want me to put on a mixture of the two? I'm always empathetic and I'm always their friend first and foremost. And the reason why I say this is because I listen to Sarah's letter and I, and I hear my own voice reading out her words. And I think to myself, I know she means well, but she doesn't really recognize where she's coming from. And she's in danger of doing her friend a great injustice if she makes the mistake of crossing the line and saying exactly what she has put down in this letter. If she is truly honest with herself, then she will recognize that a lot of what is going on here is about her. And that's never really a good reason to go and take somebody else to task about their own decisions. It doesn't mean that she doesn't care about her friend, but ironically, her concerns about this new man who apparently looks 10 years more than his own age and him not thinking about the best interests of her friend I'm not inclined to think that she has her friend's best interests at heart either. Here's a, something that probably very few uh, listeners or readers would know about me. So my parents haven't been together since I was about two and a half. And my mom got married to my stepfather when I was, I think, six slash seven. My stepfather is white and he comes from the north of England Actually, back in the day, he looked a bit like Michael Douglas. And uh, he is, or well, he is, although they're no longer married, there was 14 years between the two of them. And one of the, uh, the running jokes, and I still get a lot of amusement out of this, is when I moved over to London in my, I was 23, when I moved over to London from back home in Dublin, my uh, stepfather would come over sometimes to visit. At this stage, he was working overseas in various different places. And sometimes he would be in London. So sometimes he would come to stay. Sometimes I would meet up with him in London. And every single time I would be on, <laughs> I would be on the tube with him, or we would be uh, out to dinner, you could tell that people thought that um, it was a really like inappropriate relationship. I don't know whether they thought I was like a prostitute. I don't know whether they thought I was like he was my sugar daddy, but you could feel often because people tutted sometimes or made like face expressions that somebody called me a sellout at one point, but people project their own stuff 
onto you and they jump to conclusions uh, that really don't represent how things are. And I think sometimes we could do with stepping back somewhat. So let's get to this issue of Sarah and her friend. The reality is, yes, Sarah is projecting. That's what she wanted to know. You know, is she projecting her own stuff into this here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The thing is, and there's there's so much irony in this situation, and that's the, the nature of life, is that life can be, uh, at the same time as being amazing and brilliant, it can also really stretch you and feel like it is a pain in the backside that is trying to mess with you. Here is Sarah in an unfulfilling marriage with a man who is the same age as her, and she clearly... I'm assuming because it would be wrong to double standard and, for instance, to have taken an equally short amount of time to get to know her own uh, husband. But here she is, having taken time to make her decision about marrying a man the same age as her. And now she is querying her friend's decision to marry a man who is significantly older than her, who she's only known for six months and been dating for three months. So here's the thing. Sarah's taken a lot of time on her decision and is unhappy in her marriage. This lady has taken a shorter amount of time and isn't married yet. She might have a happy marriage. She might not. Who knows? The thing is that Sarah is afraid that when she exits, if she were to exit her marriage, she would find that she is only being confronted with men who want to go out with women who are much younger. But she has evidence because she's married to a guy who's exactly the same age as her, that clearly not all men go out with women who are significantly younger than her. I actually, okay, yeah, my my mom and my my stepfather used to be married, but I actually don't know that many people who have significant age gap relationships. And the funny thing is, is it's not just men who date uh, women who are much younger than them. There are women who date women who are much younger than them. And actually... Uh, in one of my favorite shows of the year so far, uh, which was the the People versus OJ, Sarah Paulson, who plays the Marsha Clark, who is obviously on the prosecution team against OJ, in real life she is forty one, and she is going out with the actress Holland Taylor, who is seventy three, and that's her personal choice. I don't want to go out with a 73-year-old. I'm 39. I don't want to go out with a 73-year-old, but that doesn't make somebody else's choice to go out with a 73-year-old wrong. It also doesn't mean that because I'm happy with my husband, who is four years older than me, that somebody who is going out with somebody who is much older or much younger, in fact, we have a friend who got married to somebody who is about eight, nine years younger than her. So he was like uh, late 20s, actually, when they met and she is far happier with him than she has been with any of the guys that she was went out with that were exactly the same age as her, that were close in age as her, and who were older than her. And so I really think that, yeah, there is a stereotype out there, but not every person who is older than their partner is the stereotype. She is very uncomfortable with this man who is marrying her friend. And you know what? It is okay to have reservations about your friend's partner, but make sure that those reservations are legitimate and make sure that anytime you bring it up, that it has to be rooted genuinely in their best interests. And if your own situation is crossing into it, and in fact, it's really pushing on those buttons, it's best not to 
uh, bring that up until you can safely say that you know where you end and where your friend begins in that situation. Otherwise, all that's going to happen is you're going to end up saying a whole load of stuff that's basically going to really, really sort of significantly affect the friendship. And I think that, that sometimes we just need to be a friend. We don't always agree with every single choice that our partners make. And in fact, we don't actually have to like, or sorry, not partners, our friends make. We actually don't have to like every choice that our friends make. Yes, it is very, very hard to see our friends uh, get involved with somebody who is very, very toxic for them. It can be very, very hard to be there and see uh, a friend in pain. And of course, we try our best to support them. Of course, we try our best to steer them in another direction. But we also can't make our friends' choices. And I don't think it's intentional, but I think that Sarah feels almost on some level like she wants to have some sort of control over her friend's choice. And it's like, really, her friend would be exchanging one set of control for another if, for instance, he were trying to control that choice. I suspect that if she is deeply religious, that probably has something to do with the speed of the relationship and why things are going at the pace that they are. That's not to say that everybody who who goes at a speedy pace is doing it for religious reasons. But I just think that, uh, that a lot of the discomfort about this is her friend is making a very, very significant life decision in a relatively short period of time, while Sarah herself also has to make a very big life decision whether to leave her marriage, but hasn't chosen to because she's afraid of what else is out there. And so she is stuck and possibly has been stuck for a long period of time, whereas her friend is making a leap. The marriage may or may not work out between her friend and this guy. I wish them every luck in the world with much blessings and love and light. And at the end of the day, yes, there can be problems in age gap relationships because sometimes each person doesn't understand the other person's viewpoint on life or how each person wants to live. And in actual fact, in any relationship, you each need to get a sense of how you want to live because how things are when you're dating is very, very different to how it is when you are in a relationship. And so they have been together for a relatively short period of time. And I do hope that they have talked about, you know, sort of how they each want to live because otherwise when they do become married, they may find that their lives don't fit together very well. I don't know the ins and outs of this person. It's not really fair to turn around and say that because somebody is 20 years older that they are automatically uh, shady. But uh, what I do know is that there are two people here who are faced with very, very big life decisions. And uh, that each person, uh, if they're, if they're going to be a friend to each other, they have to respect that person's position, even if they don't necessarily agree with it. Um, if she does feel that she can't support the marriage, then it, it is unfortunate. It may signal the end of the friendship. I do think that sometimes a conversation is worthwhile, but I do also think that if she is going to have that conversation, she needs to sort out her own side of the street with her own relationship first before she goes into that conversation with her friend. If you have a question that you would like to put forward for the show, you can drop me an email at podcast at baggagereclaim.com. Each week in this part of the show, I'll share something that I've learned that week. It might be an insight that's helped me to know and take care of me better or an anecdote or experience that's given me a perspective on life. A couple of years ago on the blog, I wrote about, are you dimming your light? And what I meant by this is when, and it typically starts very early on in life, where you feel the need to play yourself down in order to raise somebody else up. 
And I stumbled across the realization while I was, funny enough, at a hypnotherapy session for my driving lessons that I had dimmed my light all of my life uh, as a way to protect my brother. So the next one down for me, who's 18 months younger than me. It was an enormous realization uh, that it played actually into friendships as well, sort of in my 20s in particular, where I found myself dimming my light. And so as a result of that, I've made a really, really conscious effort to recognize where that habit is coming up. And, you know, it's helped me to to really to sort of step into myself, you know, really dealing with fear of failure, fear of success, because I think when we dim our light, we are afraid really that if we don't dim our light and we don't do things to protect this person, whether it's friend or family or whatever, that we feel that if we actually step into ourselves and be who we are, that we might alienate ourselves, that we are going to be rejected and yes, potentially air quotes, abandoned, because we will see it as like, oh my gosh, you know, particularly if it's close family member, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm being abandoned because I'm being myself. I'm not I'm not dimming the light. I'm not making the way for them. So I've been very, very conscious of this habit. And it's it's been it's been really good to recognize and I've learned a lot about myself. So this over this, I've just we just literally got back today of recording this episode from being in Amsterdam. And we were supposed to be there for only 10 days, but we're actually out there for eleven because our flight was cancelled in the middle of the night. On the trip, I had an opportunity to hang out with not just my brother, who we visit out there every summer, but also my two half-sisters, you know, my sisters. And so it's the first time that all four of us had hung out together like this. I've spent quite a bit of time with my sisters over the years, but my brother hadn't. And with our father being ill, it was like he suddenly went, actually, like, need to, like, let go of all of this kind of like, oh, they probably had it better than I did. And he, you know, they got a better version and get to know them and to hang out. And it was brilliant. We had a great time together. What was quite interesting is that, and it was only after it had happened, but I realized, I don't think it was dimming my light as such, but the, the roles do exist in families. And so I found that, you know, I was sort of in the big sister role. And that meant that actually on the first couple of nights that they were there, I was air quotes babysitter because obviously I was there with my two daughters already and then I babysat my niece that was absolutely fine but I realized like I immediately slipped into Miss Responsible role you know me being the eldest and as soon as I realized it I was like sort of laughing to myself but I I actually wanted to hand back and let them go and do their thing but something interesting has happened in the sense that something sort of faded away in this trip where I've come back from it and I've realized I definitely don't want to dim my light anymore. I looked at all four of us, laughing, chatting, you know, almost in a way as if we actually had almost had grown up together. There's a lot of easy laughter, you know, a lot of fun telling stories and whichever else. And I suddenly realized, like, we are all, you know, great in our own right. We're all worthwhile and and valuable entities in our own right. And we don't have to compete with each other. None of us have to dim our light for each other. I don't want to dim my light anymore. That's the thing that I really learned over this 10 days. I just want to stay in my own lane. I have to trust that I will be loved even when I'm myself. And I always strive to be myself, but particularly when it comes to family, I have to trust that I will be loved, that I will be okay regardless when I step into being myself and strive to be and do more. There can be this fear, I think, when we dim our light that 
or, or when we choose to stop dimming our lights, it's like, oh, if I try to do more in life, whether it's to be more successful or I don't know, whatever it is, that we fear that if we step into being who we are, that we stop worrying so much about alienating others, that we're actually going to be rejected. And so that's why we also continue to dim our light to raise everybody else up. But you know what? Dimming our lights just isn't necessary. It really isn't because also it's like coming from a place of pity. It's like not trusting that the person will find their own way and do their own thing. Not trusting that actually we don't need to be in control of everything, that we don't need to micromanage, you know, their journey. So, yeah, here's to not dimming my light anymore. And I really, you know, it's it's a process and it's a journey. You know, I don't think it's going to like disappear. I have to be very, very conscientious about it because it is a habit I have literally had since being a toddler. Uh, where I felt over-responsible and where I felt the need to kind of, you know, play myself down. But I am very, very conscious, uh, extra, extra conscious about it now. And now it's like something has faded away. It's, it's, It's really hard to pinpoint, but it's like in that moment where all four of us came together, it felt like that something's changed in the overall story. Something's changed in the journey. And it feels like, you know, we're free to support each other, but also free to be ourselves. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Baggage Reclaim Sessions. Remember, without direction and purpose, your relationship has no aim. It doesn't need to know exactly where it's going or the exact routes and stops that it's going to make along the way, but it does need to know that it's allowed to go somewhere. Don't settle for a relationship where it's not allowed to go somewhere where you know where you want to go in life. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Baggage Reclaim Sessions, which is edited by my little brother, Sean, who also put together the theme tune for the show. I can't believe it, but the next episode is the anniversary episode of the show. Yes, the Baggage Reclaim Sessions has been going for almost a year, and I can't wait to bring you what I have in store for listeners. So look out. Now, If you would like to submit a listener question or you have a topic suggestion, you can drop me an email at podcast at baggagereclaim.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as Baggage Reclaim. See you next week. And don't forget, you can find all episodes at baggagereclaim.co.uk forward slash podcast. You can also go straight to an episode by putting in baggagereclaim.co.uk forward slash and then the episode number.